Welcome back to Season 3 of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Stefano Bini. In this series of podcasts, we are highlighting the best presentations from the January 2020 San Francisco Digital Orthopedics Conference, otherwise known as DOCSF, presented in partnership with UCSF's Department of Orthopedic Surgery, and the November 2019 DOCSF Berlin Conference, presented in partnership with Frontiers Health. On this episode 15 of season three, our last episode from DOCSF 2020 conference, our case study will feature a company that has real world experience on how the use of data and analytics can solve real problems for their client health institutions. Jean Drouin, the charismatic CEO and founder of Clarify Health, developed many insights while working side by side with Tony Blair, rebuilding the NHS many years ago as a consultant for McKinsey and Company. He explains the power of data to the audience of DOCSF and takes questions from the moderator, Dr. Einar Sawyer, Chief Health Innovation Officer for the Translational Research Institute for Space Health at UCSF. Let's join them on stage as they close out the DOCSF 2020 conference. So we've been talking about operations. So let's just say that you're going to go to a bank and you're going to go to the teller, and you're going to apply for credit today. Usually within an hour or so, there'll be a yay or nay. If you're a patient going to the hospital or seeking insurance, or if you're an insurer who's deciding to seek, to decide whether or not to insure a group of customers from a company, the kind of data available to the bank to make the decision so quickly simply hasn't been available to any of us, any of us trying to assume risk in healthcare because it just simply hadn't been gathered in one place. Not only was it not in one place, the, uh, the firepower, the, the raw data processing tools necessary were only available to general, general people who've been doing this for a long time, based in insurers, until now. So let me introduce you, Jean Drouin from Clarify Health to tell us exactly how they solved that problem. So thank you all for sticking around till the end. I really appreciate it. Just before I go in to clarify in the case study, just a little bit about myself and my background. I'm Canadian, so I grew up in a different kind of health system. I spent eight years working in the UK in the NHS, including a stint as the head of strategy and the budget for NHS London. So I had all of the hospital social care primary care in London, so $15 billion in spend, essentially reporting to me and the CEOs coming and saying, okay, will you approve our budgets? And that was between 04 and 08. And even though Tony Blair was trying as best as he could to reform the system and make it more effective and efficient, and we technically had complete centralized control to do anything we wanted, nothing happened because ultimately the quality and actionability of the information that was getting to the people making the decisions on the ground, whether that was a family member, a patient, or a clinician, just wasn't good enough to get people to move. And it's not that people don't want to change or that they're ill-intentioned or that they don't want to do the right thing. If the quality of information that exists in healthcare today were what a bank or Amazon had, they would go bankrupt. And so the story here is a story of the following, which is imagine that you were able to power better health and therapies 
for providers, payers, and life science companies through actionable insights from all of the world's patient-level data. So that can be done if you bring together the largest ever patient-level data set, so 250 million lives of clinical claims, lab script, and social determinant data, the social determinant data being everything that an Amazon or a bank would use to understand credit risk, for example, so LexisNexis, LiveRamp, et cetera, and imagine that you put that through the same machine that Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan use to, when a pension fund manager logs in, says across bonds, equities, derivatives, here's to the penny in real time what this is worth. Now, uncannily, the data sign around predicting the value of a derivative, so farmer hedges against the weather, weather hasn't happened yet is very similar to patient comes in with a set of clinical and social characteristics and behavioral characteristics. How is he or she going to progress through their journey of care? So if you have that amount of data through that kind of a platform, you can deliver a single source of the truth for healthcare. Or as some of our customers are now saying, the atlas that gives us the treasure maps we've always been looking for. So. The story today is a story of a provider that in response to a payer saying, if you want to keep your volume, you have to get into value-based arrangements with us. This is on the East Coast. What do I do? And so ultimately, their main question is, how do I optimize across revenue cost and quality while maintaining or improving quality? And one of the ways in which I know how to do that is how to better match patients to the right providers. Okay, so it's not no longer referrals just for the purpose of keeping them on the home team. It's am I making the right referrals? And when I'm looking at the workflow, am I making the right decisions about improving care? Okay, so people were being held back by lack of data. Well, actually, it's funny. Lack of actionable data. They're actually bombarded by way too much useless data. Okay. Lack of time in a slew of point solutions. So the point was actually made in the last presentation around everything best of breed on one platform is mayhem. You actually need something that speaks to everybody. And it, interestingly, the most innovative payers now are saying that they need a two-sided reporting platform, meaning it's the same truth to the provider and to the payer, you're seeing the same thing. And oh, by the way, it might become a little less confrontational when we negotiate. Okay, so how do you solve that in healthcare? You have to bring the same power, speed, precision of analytics that a bank has when it says, hey, log in, give me your information, I'll approve your credit card in real time. Now, the scale of investment made to do that was non-trivial. But interestingly, all of healthcare's data brought together is actually small compared to what's out there in other industries. Okay, the features of these platforms are they can bring massive data sets together, but critically clean data sets. And they automate the process of cleaning the data through data pipelines using machine learning and AI to start cleaning the data. The second thing they do is they have the power and speed to interrogate data in real time. If anybody out there is an analyst in a hospital, how many weeks do you spend today SQL querying just to get the data set to do your analysis? 
These platforms do it in real time, no more SQL queries. Then you want to be able to have the power and speed to run the machine learning you need to run fast enough to get the insight to the user in the workflow at a point where they can make a decision. Because if the insight comes too late, what's the point? It's like if a tree fell in the forest and nobody was there, I mean, who cares? So, and then ultimately, it's all about making the best possible decisions. So, pretty reliably, when we go in, we encounter these challenges. The analytics team says, I'm already doing that. Yeah, machine learning, AI, et cetera, I, I do that. Physicians say, well, my patients are different. I don't want a black box and I don't have time. And the management team says, I want guaranteed ROI. Okay, now, by the way, that is not how management teams behave in other industries. They're like, wait a second, does anybody that I'm competing with have this elsewhere? Because if I'm exposed, I'm bringing it in. And if they don't have it, I'm gonna bring it in so I'm better than the person next door. So the pilot-itis comment earlier resonates very, very deeply. Okay, so how do you overcome the objections? I won't go through all of them, but in this case of clinicians, interestingly, you go to baseball and you do what general managers do today. You bring in wins above replacement. What does that mean? Well, the California Angels pay Mike Trout 30 million a year because they know that Mike Trout adds 12.4 more wins than, with than without. But what they're really saying there is if an average player were to be replaced on the same team, what's the difference? So imagine you had a large enough data set that you could go to any clinician in the country, any facility, and say, if an average physician of exactly your kind in your market had taken care of your patients, here's what he or she would have achieved. Okay, that is 100% case mix adjustment of the kind never seen before in healthcare. Because if you build the right machine, it doesn't just include age and race and income, it can include any factor. The machine doesn't care and it learns. So you can have over 500 factors determine the risk of a patient population. So interestingly, you would think that clinicians would hate this. They're actually our biggest proponents. Why? Because we say, come on, do you accept that something is gonna measure you? They're like, well, yeah, reluctantly, yes. So, okay, what do you want the something that measures you to do? Well, I want it to be fair. I want it to recognize that my patients are different. Uh, and by the way, they're very different physician to physician, two or three X sometimes. Now, why? Well, in orthopedics, what's the time-honored tradition? Who gets to see all the Medicaid and Medicare patients? Oh, the newer folks. The more experienced physicians tend to see more of the commercial patients. That dramatically affects case mix. We see all of that in our data. The other one is you don't want a black box. Okay, fine, show people exactly their mix and what drives the difference in their case mix. What you see here, these blue diamonds, that's basically the case mix adjusted value. And then if you're green, it means that you're statistically significantly outside the confidence interval, overperforming the expectation for what you should have done, which means you're better. And if you're red, it means that 5 to 95% confidence interval, maybe you should think about it. So to give you a real example, at a hospital in California, they were mandatorily put in the CJR program, so the government bundle program, right? They, it's funny, their language was, we got CJR, and they were right. 
They were middle of the pack when they started, 400 out of 800. Deploying these kinds of statistics, they, in one year, were fourth in the US. They went from no bonus to $2,000 per episode in bonus. Now, why is that? Well, first of all, every surgeon bought into the analytics they were shown because they said, well, yeah, actually, scientifically, it speaks to us. The second thing was, when you have a data set of 250 million lives, the comment that you have to have the data from the EMR is hogwash. Why? Number one, where do the claims come from? The EMR. Okay. In ICD-10, the amount of information that goes from an EMR to the claim is enormous. It's just that the statement is Optum never bothered to scrape it to get all of the intelligence out of it, and most people get their reports from Optum today. But if you go and scrape all this stuff, all that you're really missing is the notes and some lab values. Well, it turns out you can go get lab values elsewhere and you can now union data at patient level in a de-identified HIPAA compliant CMS approved way that allows you to link massive data sets. So you actually have very precise data where you can return and say, hey, do you all realize that 40% of your readmissions are caused by constipation? Seriously? Okay, they changed the order set that night. You do not need a computer to tell you what to do to deal with constipation as the cause of readmission. Okay, the other one, just to give you an example, is, hey, physician X, you're the most effective and efficient surgeon in all of Orange County, but you had 27 patients in the last 18 months that were African-American females with diabetes. For some reason, that's the sub-cohort on which you struggle. Okay, most clinicians know how to deal with that if they're told that's the cohort. So that is the power of advanced analytics. And the kinds of things that you can now do is to come up with scorecards that are completely case mix adjusted and that allow you, for example, to go prove to a payer that against any cohort you want to compare yourself against, you are more effective and efficient. So the Cleveland Clinic uses this now to prove to its payers that in valves, it is by far the most effective and efficient academic medical center in the country. And it's clear without a doubt. Now that is not true in some other specialties, but that is the power of this stuff now. And the kind of impact that you can have I've just given you a couple of provider examples, but there's a big payer on the East Coast that said, wow, this concept of using a metal detector to get treasure maps to understand where the opportunity for addressable variation is in the health systems I contract with. Well, on the eight major systems they contract with, this is a blue, there are $850 million of savings just by getting clinicians and facilities to move, not to some ideal performance, but just to the expectation of what an average facility or physician would do. You can pick better performing doctors as a payer to contract with and save an enormous amount of your entire book. And if you're a primary care medical group in California taking capitated risk, you can better understand which patients are going to need care ahead of time so that for the most complex ones, you save four to 10000 a year in management costs, primarily by addressing their social determinants.
So hopefully it gives you a whistle-stop tour of what's possible now in healthcare and big data and analytics in a very pragmatic and highly implementable way. My name is Einor Sawyer. I'm in the Department of Orthopedics at UCSF and director of the Skeletal Health Service and also of the Space Health Lab. And we can hold off on these slides. We're going to stay with this panel so we can go ahead and close that down. And first of all, thank you for that presentation. If we can get all the panelists up on stage, that would be great. We're really privileged to have with us people with very diverse but very deep expertise who are going to be asking some probing questions. Of course, just like the other case studies, we'll take questions from the audience as well. So first, I'd like to introduce Dr. Sig Bervin, professor of orthopedics at UCSF, chief of our spine service, and a real international thought leader in value-based care with an unquenchable thirst for processes or technologies that will improve our patients' experience and their outcomes. We also have Maria Filipova, who leads innovation for Anthem, and she has a really unique lens of an activated patient that she brings to her work and her perspectives. And then Richard Santori, he's a highly respected orthopedic surgeon from San Diego. He has extensive experience and unique perspectives on the evolution of healthcare and keeps a keen eye on horizon technologies. And also Mark Mackey, who's Senior Director of Enabling Technologies, and I think it's called Real Intelligence which is the opposite of fake news, I think. So we've got a really great group here. We're going to get started with questions. Sig, why don't you lead off for us? Just start by saying that was a terrific presentation and great overview. And I've got terrific enthusiasm for the ability to use claims data and, and large data to answer big questions, including determining pathways that are appropriate for patients and, and, and finding value-based solutions. When we're looking at big data, and a lot of our research it can sometimes be challenging because the data that comes out of claims data sometimes doesn't really encompass everything that we'd expect from our value calculations. So certainly we can get a lot of information about process variables, so length of stay, costs, but actually the patient's experience, the health rate quality of life metrics, how do we really get value out of the claims data? Yeah. Okay, so a couple of thoughts here. One is an ideal world is to get as much data as possible. There's no doubt that combining clinical and claims gets you further, although interestingly, you're often with the clinical just validating that what's in the claims to your point is correct. One thing is when you have that amount of claims data, you can actually use machine learning to train models to filling the missingness and also pick out the variants that are clearly off to go and clean the data. You just have enough power to do that. The point you make about experience is remarkably important because wisdom of the crowd is a real thing. And there just isn't right now a very good way other than maybe what Press Ganey's got, but they're not so far as I know, making it proactively available in the way that others make their data available. There's no great data set on patient experience to bring into the data lake, so to speak. And so what systems we work with who in their balanced scorecard want to look at volume, cost, quality, and experience do is they bring in their own data feed on experience and use that for the moment. Great. Thank you. Maria, why don't you go next? Great. And thanks for leading us off with the most important question, I believe, around data. So I'd like to stick in that same area for a little bit. 
when you think about actionable data and insights, as you call them, I see that you need basically three very key components. You need the right data set, you need the software, the intelligence around it, and you need computing power. If you think computing power is currently available grossly, how is what you're doing special when it comes to the data you have? You mentioned the 250 million data points or members. How is that data set acquired? The data in it, how is it continuously maintained and data use agreements? And by the way, how is that data set, are you able to use it with competitors, right? You're working with some plants on the East Coast, West Coast. And tell us about the intelligence that you're building on top of it. How is that special relative to what is being done in-house? Yeah. So the way that data can be brought together today works as follows. It's the capability to do this is only two or three years old. To be able to work in the world of de-identified data and yet string together at individual patient level, you essentially have to have a virtual master patient index. Think of it as a virtual social security number. The engineering term for that is a token. And it is possible for a trusted third party to hold a set of tokens for every individual in the country. And when you go and acquire either from a customer or from a third party, a data set, you send it to the third party who uses the identified data, tokenizes it and sends you back the tokenized information. You can then go to another data source and do the same thing and you can link the two tokens together. What those two tokens have though, one example, if I have clinical data here, claims data here, claims data there, and it's all linked, I know for that one individual, all of the physicians that were in that information and all of the facilities that were in that information. So that's how you bring data together. Now, you framed a very important part of the question, which is, it is now possible to go and largely purchase the size of data set that I just talked about. It would cost about 12 to 15 million a year to do that. Just purchasing it, though, doesn't really get you anywhere because you have to map it, clean it, and automate the process of doing that every time you get an update. And it's that on the data side that is highly proprietary because the difference between the raw data ingredients and the cooked data set are massive. Because the cooked data set is what you need to put into your intelligence machine learning layer so that you don't get garbage in, garbage out. So to clarify, so the data is cleaned up, labeled the right way so algorithms can get trained and learn from it. And what you're describing is that you could take a data set from a competitor. My hospital and his hospital could be working in the same market. You could be taking both our data sets, de-identified it, tokenizing it, having algorithms learn from that combined data set. And then those algorithms, then you're selling that intelligence to the next company. Or well, it's actually, that's what we, we already have data on all of you. We have data on 250 million people based on their claims. We actually have a Dartmouth Atlas on steroids. So that, that's already here. And in fact, what happens now is when hospitals that we go to see what we have, they say, wait a second. Emotionally is very different than most startups because most startups come to me and they say, well, I need your data, otherwise I can't do anything and I'm not going to pay you for your data. How was that acquired? 
the data set that you currently have? Oh, sure. So when an EMR sends a claim to a payer, CMS or a commercial payer, there's an intermediary in between. They're called clearinghouses. They all sell their data. That's You've acquired the data through the clearinghouses and you continue to update that streamlined every year as the data continues. Absolutely. To and then there are EMR companies that also sell all of their data. Yeah. Thank you. I, I mean, it's fundamental to understanding yeah. how this works is the data. Yeah. I want to move on now and I'm going to ask Dr. Santori to go next. And then Mark, I know you've got questions as well. We're going to try to keep things crisp and short and succinct. There's just so much to talk about here, but we want to give everybody a chance and there's an audience question as well. John, who do you consider your two most potent competitors and are you gaining ground or losing ground against them? And what's your strategy for dealing with it? So two most potent competitors are Optum and then Komodo, K-O-M-O-D-O in the life sciences space. Optum because they're who they are. The way we deal with them is, interestingly, we have as much data as they have now. The machine we have to render the kind of insights we have would take them two and a half to three years to build. And it's because our engineering team built Goldman's and JP Morgan's platforms. And Komodo, tremendous respect for them because they really pioneered pulling data together in this way haven't made the same level of investment in automating the cleaning of the of the data. Terrific marketing and you know arguably they went after just life sciences where there's money and they move faster. We were very mission driven and we didn't want to give up on providers. So it takes a little longer with providers, but ultimately we feel that's where the cause is and you know where we all want to be working. Should we start a rumor that Komodo's acquiring Dragon Speak? No, that's a joke. <laughs> Mark, could you share with us a question? Sure. In the spirit of execution is everything here. So you're talking about you know, implementation across multiple clinics, multiple hospitals, lots of providers. If you were to qualify, say, the, the biggest risk to retire when you're implementing you know, one of these analytics tools or machine learning tools, you know, what would you qualify as, say, the, the biggest thing? Is it budget, you know, executive buy-in to the project? Is it the technical hurdles? How would you retire those risks? And sure. Are they? You know, ultimately, it's all about impact and are you making a difference? So you have to make sure that what you do gets adopted. And so what you build has to be simple enough and usable enough that people, you know, warm to it. It is true that up front, it is absolutely brutal to get software as a service. So our business model is it's a subscription to the platform. Even when you get the business owner approval, it invariably takes nine to 12 months to get the first contract signed. Now, interestingly, people then get to experience it. And we have multiple situations now where the follow-on contracts take less than 90 days because you just append a statement of work to the contract. We've been lucky that we've been very well funded by a private equity firm, but even then, I mean, there's nothing that's guaranteed. And the pace at which it takes to go from pilotitis to implemented in healthcare means by definition that, I don't know, 90, 95% of startups will fail. It just takes too long to get to some amount of revenue. I know there are burning follow-up questions here in the panel. I'm going to jump to Slido here for a second, but if it becomes quite urgent, please stand up, raise your hand, do something. This question is from Squirrel, who's either a nut job or wants to 
crack the hardest nut here. So I think it's crack the hardest nut. Process outcomes, relationships are the holy grail from a research perspective. Do you have any plans to capture process measures not available in claims? Yeah. So the answer there is if someone does the work to collect it, then the way these stacks and machines are built, they will heartily welcome the data. So it's really a matter of the systematic collection happening. So this question, I think probably Dr. Bourbon will jump in on as well. This question is, as you acquire customers, wouldn't additional data from the EHR augment your models beyond what claims data can do? And, and Sig, you may want to join in this conversation because I, I heard you speak to this earlier. So what I'm interpreting here is, is there data in addition to what's already in EHR? And I think we've addressed that a little bit, and certainly the patient health quality, quality of life data, the patient experience data ought to be quite useful. So I might twist this a little bit to say one of the applications that I'd be particularly enthusiastic about is if we look at areas where there's tremendous variation in what we do in medicine or what we do here in orthopedics, how we manage anterior knee pain, how we manage back pain, all sorts of examples outside medicine, prostate cancer, breast cancer, and things. So with regard to uh, a patient comes to see me with at UCSF, we've got providers that include non-operative providers, neurosurgeons, orthopedic surgeons, physiatrists, pain management specialists. How can we use information that might be available from previous claims data to triage that patient to the right provider and to try to provide the most efficient care? So it's possible to do a couple of things now because the approach of winds above replacement to look at physician performance, you can flip the data cube and say, what types of patients coming in had good outcomes with either a certain provider, a certain day of the week, a certain team, right? It's possible to do all of those things. What I would distinguish though here is the ability of the kind of platform I'm talking about to identify where the smoke signals are. So where the relevant cohorts might be or what the relevant day of the week where there's an issue might be or which OR there's good performance in. But what you have to differentiate in terms of operational performance is two things in my view. One is collective wisdom of how to practice in the right way and then making sure to practice in that way is a different element of operational performance and improvement. I and mean, there are ways to measure that as well, but what I'm talking about here is more the metal detector to go identify the variation as opposed to the system that ensures that every widget is done in the same way. I think Dr. Santori has a follow-up question on this. One of the biggest changes occurring in the marketplace is large employers sending patients to selected centers for surgery in special areas, medical tourism, in other words, to what degree are they using, if at all yet, your data to select institutions to target their patients? Yeah. Talking about the Walmarts. Sure, sure. So we haven't done that yet directly. It's certainly, as you say, more than theoretically possible. We have tended to work with the providers who want to go to the Walmarts to make the case. But what you do then is you essentially create, and my advice to you all as providers would be, if you're the ones taking the first step, you can define what you believe is the relevant episode and then go and make the case to the payer that, hey, 
I deal with much more complex stuff in spine, for example. And therefore, the episode that's relevant where I really shine is not the average box standard one that you tend to look at. It's this one over here. And when you have types like this, you should send them our way. We're just a minute over, but in all fairness and also to represent the audience and the panel, I'm going to give Mark the last question here. The, the last question came from orthopedic manufacturing groups in the audience. So could you represent them with your yeah, next question? Sure. Thank you for that last you know, toss my way. But how would you consider yourself, say, software as a service or a consulting firm that solves you know, certain problems? So do, I guess, do customers come to you with very specific you know, problems to solve, or you develop a relationship over a long period of time in solving multiple problems? So we're a software firm. We're a technology company. The analogy, think of salesforce.com, right? When they have their conference in San Francisco each year, 180,000 people come. It's like JPM madness. And it's people from Accenture and Deloitte, and they have built massive consulting operations. Salesforce could have built a 50,000-person consulting firm. They didn't. And we think of ourselves in the same way. We're the technology. We train our customers to be self-sufficient using the platform. Now, there is some amount of more hands-on implementation work that may need to occur. And we say, hey, we love XYZ consulting firms that you could partner with. Thank you. Or, or manufacturers, for that matter. Thank you very much. The question was, how can orthopedic manufacturers take advantage of what you're doing? I think they also would be great sources of data. So I think there'll be a win-win and conversations can follow on into the lobby. I want to thank the panelists and John for your presentation. I also want to thank Dr. Beanie and the whole DocSF team for this amazing conference and Dr. Vale for continuing to support our wacky ideas to provide out-of-this-world healthcare. Uh, thank you, guys. That was a really great panel. I, I love the questions. It was very thoughtful, thought-provoking. And, and I know before you go, you have this amazing project going. Want to give us a couple of highlights about what's happening, some of the problems you're tackling with the space program? Yeah, I'll keep this brief because we are out of time. And this is a heroic group to stay this late. So I don't want to forget one thing. If those of you in the room are interested in space health, we have a conference coming up in November, and I will comp everyone who stayed to this hour to hear this. <laughs> Send me an email and remind me of that. So we've been very fortunate within the Department of Orthopedic Surgery to be looked at as leaders in health tech innovation and disruption, and we were tapped to see if we might want to work with a group called the Translational Research Institute for Space Health, which is Trish, if you want to look it up. Put Trish NASA or Trish Baylor so you don't get Trish the porn star. But it's it's a really well, great organization. It's funded right out of NASA, the Human Research Program. And I'm now their chief health innovation officer. We brought in a large grant. We now have space health innovation fellows, space health innovation conferences. We've started not just the UCSF Space Health Lab in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery, but also UC Space Health across all the campuses. We have a series of slides here, but I think the main point I'd like to say is that working on space health, space medicine, it's really the edge case or the forcing function for all the problems we're trying to solve in terrestrial healthcare. So if you're working on solutions for remote medical management or integrating data from disparate data streams in challenging ways, this is really an opportunity. It doesn't need to be a distraction. It can actually advance your own model and commercialization pathway on Earth. I'd be really happy to talk to you about it. I have a unique opportunity to source innovative solutions and also help 
provide funding through the organization I'm working with, and we also are launching a UC Space Health Award. I'll keep it at that, but it's a fascinating field, and I'd love to talk to anyone who's interested. Awesome. You've done amazing work there and uh, leading us there. Out of this world. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Season 3 of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast and that you heard something that will trigger your curiosity and advance your digital journey. Many of the examples we bring you are outside of orthopedics, but the technologies and solutions we present are all eminently translatable to musculoskeletal care. Please consider giving us a review on your podcast platform so other people can find us. More importantly, tell a friend about our amazing community. We look forward to sharing the next episode with you. I am your host, Stefano Bini, founder and chair of both the Digital Orthopedics Conference San Francisco and this, the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. Music.